This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Christian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Will Sippling, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Hans Borsma about his new book, Seeing God, the Beatific Vision in Christian Tradition, published in 2018 by Erdmans. Hans holds the St. Benedict Servants of Christ chair in ascetical theology at Neshota House Theological Seminary in Wisconsin, in the United States, and previously was professor at Regent College in Vancouver, British Columbia. Hans, thanks for coming on to the show. Thank you for having me, Will. Well, I've given you a very short introduction about you, but I'd love to have you tell us a little bit more about who you are, uh, what you do, and any more details that I might have missed. Well, um, I am married to uh, my wife, who's just this past summer retiring from a teaching job, she has taught grades four and five or fourth and fifth grade for a long time and uh, has retired. Um, we have five children, um, 10 grandchildren. Um, my theological interests um, vary f- uh, a fair bit, um, but they center around questions surrounding sacramentality and participation. Um, and in, in that connection, I've been looking at the church fathers um, I've been looking at, uh, most recently, at the doctrine of the beatific vision. Um, I'm also interested in questions of theological interpretation in general, and I'm quite um, quite interested in the mid-20th century Catholic movement of Nouvelle Theologie. So those are some of the some of the main interests. And it sounds like a good deal of those things are covered in your book, Seeing God, and that sounds like a great place to just jump in. And where better to start than with the foreword? Um, and I noted, noted that there was a quote in there that says that your book is not so much a history, but rather an exploration of various views of the beatific vision. And you do sort of follow a, a historical path. But maybe you can tell us a little bit more about your methodology or your inspiration for the, the path that you follow throughout the book. Yes, um, maybe the best way to begin is by talking a little bit about um, what motivated me in writing the book. Um, and the motivation essentially is twofold. One is I have um, become convinced that the vision of God in the eschaton and the hereafter is what we're looking forward to. Um, the great tradition has, um, for the most part, insisted that the beatific vision is our final end. And I've become, been, I've become convinced that that is a a correct understanding of the hereafter. And if that's the case, then I thought, well, it's incumbent on me to 
know a little bit more about it than I currently do. So an important motivation for me is a personal one. I wanted to know more about what uh, theologians in the past, what the church in the past has taught about the beatific vision. And a second uh, motivation for the book uh, has to do with the um, relative decline of the doctrine in the modern period, um, and in particular um, within uh, evangelicalism, in which I've been teaching for the past 14 years or so. Um, it's not only declining within evangelicalism, but certainly it is within evangelicalism. And um, so there is a... There is a um, Another reason behind the book, and that is to shore up the doctrine of the beatific vision within a certain context and to hold it up for the church today to say, um, perhaps we are in danger of losing something that we dare not lose and that we should um, retain as central uh, for the church's faith. Um, so uh, in terms of um, the methodology of the book, therefore, um, Although there is a strong historical bent to the book, and many of the chapters are historical in character, I constantly ask myself certain theological questions. And throughout the book, these same theological themes connected to the beatific vision are themes that I keep coming back to. Um, so the question, for example, of Christology and beatific vision is an important theme that runs throughout the book. And most of the authors that I read um, I ask from them the question, um, how do you deal with um, the contents of the vision? Do you understand that in some way as Christological or not? Uh, another question that I typically ask of these authors is, how do you see our vision of God today in various ways related to the vision of God in the hereafter? Um, are they two connected or are they, uh, do you see them as, more, as, as largely separate? Um, so I'm, I'm looking simply at a number of historical sources, uh, theologians who have taken the doctrine of the beatific vision seriously in one way or another, and I've probed them with these kinds of questions in mind. Uh, and one other comment maybe that I should make is uh, I've purposely dealt um, with theologians East and West, theologians Catholic, Orthodox, and Protestant, um, in order to see how uh, the doctrine is treated in these various traditions. I must say, I, I am impressed and was certainly impressed when I looked through the table of contents and saw uh, Catholic and Protestant authors sort of side by side, or a great Western father of the church, uh, their thought contrasted and compared with a, a Greek father of the church. Um, it just seems my goodness, there's just, you've covered a lot of ground in this book. But but maybe before we jump too far into that, I'm wondering, just so all of our listeners on board, uh, maybe can you define for us what you mean when you talk about the beatific vision? I know some might not be familiar with the term or how specifically you're using it. Right. Um, it comes from the term beatus, the Latin term beatus, which simply means happy or blessed. And so it is a vision of God um, which renders us happy. It's a vision of God in the hereafter, in the eschaton, which renders us happy. And the reason it renders us happy or blessed is because, uh, according to Christian tradition, God himself is happiness. God himself is blessedness. And so God's goal for us is a union with him, a vision of him, in which uh, this vision 
makes us happy, makes us participate um, more deeply than ever before in the happiness of God. And it seems that those two words go together, don't they? Beatific and vision. Maybe you could also walk us through a little bit about that visual metaphor as well. Yeah. Um, much of scripture um, looks at or discusses or mentions or probes um, the desire that believers have to see God. Uh, Psalm 27, for example, is a famous one uh, where the psalmist exclaims, Your face, Lord, do I seek? And there's a desire, deep desire, that the psalmist expresses there to see the face of God. And um, that theme of seeing God is a theme that runs, I think, throughout the scriptures, not just the New Testament, but also the Old. Um, the many theophanies, for example, the many appearances of God where various patriarchs or other saints of the Old Testament see God in some creative form or in some vision. All of these are ways in which the scriptures talk about seeing God. Um, most famously, perhaps, in the Old Testament, it is Moses who at various points in his life sees God, for example, at the, at the burning bush, later on in the cloud, and then finally also um, when God says to Moses to um, go and stand in the cleft of the rock, and he walks by, and, he, and Moses is able to see not his face, but his back. And that language of seeing God's face or seeing God face to face is one that, um, that runs through the scriptures. And there, most famously, St. Paul picks up on that, um, on the, on that phraseology uh, when he says that now we see as in a mirror, but then we shall see him face to face in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12. Um, so throughout the scriptures, um, the desire of believers is expressed and believers express their desire. Uh, to see the face of God. In other words, um, the eschatological desire, the hope that believers have, is ultimately for nothing less than God himself. Nothing created, nothing earthly gives ultimate satisfaction, gives ultimate happiness. It's only God himself that does, according to this, to this vision metaphor that Scripture uses. So this metaphor is obviously central to your book and the writing. But there is also another term that's probably worth discussing a little bit more. And it's a term that uh, those readers of your other works and the Nouvelle School writings would be familiar with. But maybe you could describe a little bit for us what you mean when you use the term sacramental ontology and how that ties into this beatific vision. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, in my previous books, I've spoken a fair bit about sacramental ontology. And basically what I mean by that is that well, my understanding, which is nothing new, really, um, I don't have any claim here to originality. It's, it's a borrowing from the great tradition. But in my understanding, um, heaven and earth, nature and the supernatural are closely linked. Uh, that's something that I learned first uh, indeed, from Nouvelle theologians, mid-20th century Catholic theologians, such as Henri de Lubac, um, Yves Congar, uh, and others. And according to these theologians, uh, as they read the Church Fathers and retrieved the Church Fathers for their own day, for the, for the Catholic Church in mid-20th century, um, these Greek Fathers, and, and, and really the Church Fathers more broadly, um, connected closely 
nature and the supernatural. And what they meant by that, essentially, is that there's no such thing as a nature that is strictly or purely um, on its own, as if God in some way were absent from it, as if God's grace were somehow not present in any way to it. So nature, super, the supernatural is always already in some way present, according to Dulibach and others, and according to the Church Fathers from whom we drew. Um, the supernatural is always already in some way present in the natural order. Or you could also say heaven is in some way already present, really present, to earthly realities. And I'm purposely using the language of real, real presence here, uh, saying that heaven is in some way really present in earthly things. So that, that means that when you see things around you, things that God has created, um, their DNA doesn't exhaust what they are. Their true nature um, isn't grasped by analyzing what you can access by the senses. There's a deeper, what I would say is sacramental, there's a deeper sacramental character um, that truly defines what that created thing is. Um, and that, that deeper reality on my understanding, and I think on the, on the understanding of the great tradition, is, uh, is um, a supernatural reality. That is to say, uh, on a Christian understanding, um, it is the logos in whom uh, all things, all created things subsist. The eternal word of God, the eternal logos in whom all created things subsist. So all created things are, in that sense, sacramental. They make, um, they, they render a supernatural reality, that is to say, God himself and Jesus Christ present uh, to created things. So although we most properly speak of sacraments as ecclesial, baptism, Eucharist, other sacraments of the church, um, in some analogous sense, all of creation is sacramental. Now, the way in which that connects to the beatific vision, to the, to the theme of the beatific vision, is as follows. What I try to do in this book is ask the question, um, how does this heavenly reality, which is also a future reality, an eschatological reality, how does that connect with everyday experiences that we have? Um, if it is true that God is present in Christ in all created things, um, then it is up to us properly to see him there, properly to recognize him there. That also means that we dare not separate, uh, just as we dare not separate nature and the supernatural, so also we probably dare not separate uh, a, a, the current vision of God uh, in the created order, the current vision of God in other people, uh, the current vision of God perhaps even in our own characters, hopefully. We dare not separate those things. Um, from the eschatological vision of God in Jesus Christ that God promises to us. Just as heaven and earth, just as nature and the supernatural are closely connected, so too, on my understanding in the, in the book, uh, our vision of God here and now is an anticipation of the eternal vision, and it makes, in some sense, um, God in Christ really present to us already today. And this this separation is is guarded against by the sacramental ontology, but it's you've also mentioned here in these opening sections that we're kind of walking through 
there is another force that can cause a disintegration or a fragmentation. And that force is, is modernity that you bring up. It's a loss of vision, a loss of plausibility. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you mean here then by modernity and how it can kind of uh, work against this Christian sacramental view and ultimately a view of the beatific vision? Yes, thank you. Um, when I mentioned to you earlier that theologians such as Henri de Lubac um, returned to both patristic and also medieval authors to recover this unity between nature and the supernatural, between heaven and earth. Um, what they reacted against, and what especially de Lubac um, reacted against, was a modern separation between nature and the supernatural. On the understanding of modernity, uh, we can understand created things properly and properly only if and when we analyze them in their own constituents, um, constituent elements, the things that we can see, touch, handle. In other words, um, empirical understanding is the one and only understanding uh, on, this more modern under- on this more modern understanding of reality. What this does is it looks at nature on, in, a th- in theological terms. It looks at nature as pura natura, pure nature. So that nature is not understood as suffused with the presence of God. More and more in modernity, um, and it's a, it's a trend that many theologians have, have discussed in terms of genealogical origins, but according to modernity, and beginning perhaps in the late Middle Ages, and most prominently in the 17th and 18th centuries, more and more heaven and earth have become disconnected so that we no longer see the presence of God in the world around us. It's become difficult for us to see the presence of God and to recognize the presence of God in our everyday lives. We have, um, particularly through, uh, through deism, relegated God upstairs, as it were. And by relegating God upstairs, we've come to treat the world around us as strictly autonomous, as purely natural, as governed by its own forces rather than by supernatural realities. What this book does, or tries to do at least, is to say, um, if it is true um, that, that God is not an absentee landlord, but is really present in the world around us, then we must be able to recognize him, see him in some ways as present here. To my mind, it's no coincidence that the modern separation between nature and the supernatural um, has gone hand in hand with a decline in the doctrine of the beatific vision. When we make natural, purely natural realities, this worldly realities, uh, the one and only thing that truly counts for us, um, if we live in, in a purely natural world, then why worry about the beatific vision? Then why worry about um, understanding God as your final end, as the final cause who draws us into his presence. There's no need for such a final cause, for such a beatific vision. It's this worldly realities um, that, um, that theologically and philosophically are, are all we need. It makes sense that to get past modernity then would be to look before modernity, which you do in part one of your book when you start with early Christian thought. But interestingly, you don't start with, say, uh, scripture. You actually go before then by beginning with Plato and 
Plotinus. Can you describe why you start there and, and what those uh, Greek philosophers bring to the table about this conversation? Yes. I purposely begin uh, a, the book with a discussion after, after an initial chapter on, on the plausibility of the question of, of the beatific vision. I begin the first part of the book indeed with a discussion of Plato and Plotinus. And um, the reason f- for that is that um, part of the problem with um, contemporary, especially, again, Protestant forms of theology is that we um, rely on a, on a sola scriptura understanding of, of Christian doctrine. That is to say, an understanding of Christian doctrine that is derived strictly from scripture. And sola scriptura is understood as only scripture. Uh, that is to say, scripture by itself. Um, without going into too much detail, let me just say that such an understanding of sola scriptura um, uh, doctrine deri- being derived from scripture all by itself. Um, actually, uh, the, the, the consequence of that, the main consequence of that, to my understanding, is that scripture itself suffers the most serious consequences from this, in the sense that it means that everybody now um, tends to interpret scripture um, by him or herself and according to his or her own principles. You need, on my understanding, um, a shared um, human reason um, that undergirds our reading of Scripture. Uh, the, um, the historical connection between uh, the Greek world and the Christian faith is, on my understanding, not a coincidence. Um, I think Joseph Ratzinger, um, the retired Pope Benedict XVI, was right in insisting that um, the spread of the gospel to Europe and so the reception of the Christian faith um, through Christian tradition uh, by way of Greek philosophical concepts uh, was not a coincidence, but was a providential thing. Tradition, I have a high view of tradition, and uh, on this understanding, uh, tradition is providentially guided. It's not a coincidence that we have uh, arrived at a certain um, configuration of doctrinal theology through the centuries. Um, God, through his Holy Spirit, guides the church and is faithful to his church through the centuries. So the, the historical, traditional um, use of the church, by the church, of Greek philosophical concepts is not something to be lamented as a Hellenization of the gospel, um, but is something to be celebrated, on my understanding. Um, faith and reason go together. We shouldn't separate them as if the only thing we need is faith and as if reason didn't come into play. That counts certainly for the doctrine of the beatific vision. Um, And that's why I trace um, both Plato and Plotinus in the book, in my first chapter, to see what it is that they have to say about vision, uh, what it is that they have to say about ascent, what it is that they have to say about beauty. Um, Because all of these things come back uh, time and time again in the Christian tradition, uh, seeing that later uh, Christian theologians felt it was, um, uh, it was remarkable 
how Plato and Plotinus um, in some ways foreshadowed these biblical teachings and remarkable, and it is also remarkable, therefore, how much later Christian tradition was able to use these Platonic and Neoplatonic um, expressions of vision in their own articulation of Christian doctrine. And that makes sense that you then move on from speaking about those Greek philosophers to speaking um, about the thought of St. Gregory on sort of the Eastern side, and then also of St. Augustine more on the Western side. How, how do these two great teachers of the church then inherit this Platonic thought, or how do they make use of this Platonic thought? Yeah, so um, for Gregory of Nyssa, um, who's a particular, a particularly favorite uh, theologian of mine, um, for St. Gregory of Nyssa, um, Plato is certainly not in all things always authoritative. Let's put that up front. So the church generally, and certainly also St. Gregory of Nyssa, doesn't simply uh, adopt either Plato or the Platonic tradition um, in its entirety as if no correction were needed. In various places in his corpus, uh, St. Gregory sharply criticizes um, the, uh, the, the Platonic tradition. Just one example that immediately comes to mind is his wonderful booklet on the soul and the resurrection, where, where, um, which is a Platonic type of dialogue, where Gregory's sister, Macrina, uh, sharply, critiques, um, sharply critiques the Platonic tradition and says, we don't go by Plato, we go by Scripture. And I think in the overall context of, of St. Gregory's uh, theology, uh, what, is, what, what, he, what she is meant to express here is that the metaphysic that St. Gregory advocates is a metaphysic that is always theological in character. Plato is not authoritative simply because he's Plato, but only when, when and where he is useful to give expression to, um, to the Christian faith. Um, one, one particularly obvious way in which um, the Platonic tradition is helpful for St. Gregory of Nyssa is in the notion of uh, anagogy or ascent. St. Gregory is very much a theologian of ascent, and both Plato and Plotinus were philosophers of ascent. Um, St. Gregory articulates Christian faith, and articulates, for example, and most famously perhaps, uh, the life of Moses himself as he goes up the mountain, as a journey of ascent, um, and also the relationship between the bride and the groom in the Song of Songs, in his, sermon on the, on, on, in his sermons on the Song of Songs. St. Gregory explains that relationship between the groom and the bride, between Christ and the soul, or Christ and the church. He explains that um, as an increasing ascent into the presence of God. And particularly in connection with, this, with Moses and with the, with the bride's desire for her, uh, for her groom, um, the language of vision, uh, which is so prominent uh, in Plato and in, in Plotinus, that language is, uh, is, is tremendously helpful to Gregory. And so uh, what about Augustine then? Obviously, he's uh, writing from somewhat of a different perspective. How, how does he pull in this ancient Greek Platonic thought? 
Yeah, it's a little more, let's a little bit of a trickier question. <laughs> it's, it's an important but a tricky one. And the reason, that the way in which I came to Augustine is, uh, in, in connection with this theme, is that St. Augustine is sometimes criticized, especially by Eastern Orthodox theologians, as um, lying at the, at the foundation of, West, of later Western modernity and later Western secularism. So the notion of, of, a, of pure nature, which I mentioned to you earlier, um, the idea that nature doesn't, uh, doesn't uh, display the presence of God in any way, um, Orthodox theologians sometimes see the cause of that Western problem um, as originating with, uh, with St. Augustine. So that uh, St. Augustine basically has an understanding of nature or of the created order uh, that no longer um, displays the presence of God. And so whereas the Eastern Fathers, such as St. Gregory of Nyssa, supposedly did have an understanding of, of uh, or did have an ontology, a metaphysic that is sacramental in character, St. Augustine, on this view, um, was uh, lacking in his sacramentality. Signs would be purely signs, uh, separate from the reality of the race, to which these signs pointed. Um, now there's a, a huge also scholarly debate, not only in ecclesial, but also a scholarly debate about whether such a uh, reading uh, of Augustine as the um, harbinger of secularism is correct. And um, I'm not trying in my book to, to, um, to um, adjudicate that debate in any, any decisive fashion. But I am, I am making a small contribution, I hope, um, and I'm, tr- I'm asking the question in this chapter on Augustine of uh, whether he does see a link between the beatific vision in the hereafter and our vision of God here and now. And my basic conclusion is uh, Augustine does see a connection between the presence of God and the vision of God here and now, and the vision of God in the hereafter. And that comes to the fore, I think, in a number of different ways. Um, This is not, again, not to adjudicate the entire discussion, and to read Augustine is not in every way uh, the same thing as reading St. Gregory of Nyssa, but I think a reading of St. Augustine needs to be a nuanced one, and it's simply not, not... um, a, a fair reading of Augustine, I think, um, to, to um, see him as understanding um, nature as a purely natural thing. So as I'm sure the listeners can understand, there are many different uh, sections of, of these academic debates that you're covering, somehow ma- managing to cover it all while continuing this stream of thought of the beatific vision. I- I'm impressed, <laughs> as you can probably tell. Um, but we should probably move on to the next section of the book, Medieval Thought. And I think we'll just highlight two uh, different writers here. Uh, the first would be St. Thomas. And I know that in some other uh, of your works, you've critiqued a very modernist tendency towards nominalism that can sometimes come out in certain strains of 
neo-Thomist writing. Is, is that what you bring up here in the section on St. Thomas, or is there something that we can really draw from St. Thomas that yeah. can contribute to this conversation? I don't, I don't deal with um, that question of, of the relationship between Nouvelle Theology, people such as Henri de Lubac especially, um, and, and uh, neo-Thomist thought. I don't discuss neo-Thomism at all. What I do do in, in one of my chapters, in the first chapter of, um, of, of on medieval thought, is I compare um, Gregory Palamas, the Eastern, 14th century Eastern theologian, uh, and St. Thomas on their understandings of the transfiguration, where Christ uh, shows himself in his divine glory to Peter, James, and John, Matthew 17 and parallels. So I compare Palamas and Aquinas on that, and the question indirectly indirectly um, relates to um, the, the earlier uh, mid-20th century debates about neo-Thomism, in that I do ask the question, um, is St. Thomas, in his understanding of the Transfiguration, is he sacramental in character? Um, does he understand... Um, and the light that shines from um, the face of Christ, does he understand it as um, a divine light? Does he understand it as an eschatological light? And if he does, um, what are the implications? Um, and again, also here, I think um, there's no sharp contrast between Eastern and Western thought here, between Palamath and Aquinas. Um, one of the points I make in, in the book is that there's a great deal of congruence, actually, between Palamas and Thomas. Um, both recognize uh, the light of the transfiguration as being divine in character and as being eschatological in character. And those two points uh, render both of these theologians, of my understanding, uh, sacramental in their understanding of the beatific vision. The light of God, the light of the eschaton, makes itself truly present, really present uh, to the disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration. That's important because it means that Thomas is not modern. And when you read modern commentaries on the Transfiguration, uh, often, not uniformly, but often, um, there is this sort of miracle that happens where um, uh, the humanity of Jesus somehow gets changed um, on, on, the, on the mountain. And there's maybe an encouragement for the disciples, uh, seeing that um, Jesus will soon, um, will soon undergo his suffering and death. There's an encouragement to the disciples um, that, that Jesus' glory somehow shines. But for the fathers... And for medieval authors especially, and Thomas here picks up on St. John of Damascus, um, the transfiguration is, is a display in and through Jesus' humanity of his divine slash eschatological glory, which always already was present in and through him. In other words, part of the miracle here is that the disciples are now able to see they are being transfigured, in other words, they are being changed. The disciples are now able to see what always was already the case. Now, that is a viewpoint that the church fathers 
East and West, as John McGuckin makes clear in, in his book on the Transfiguration of the Church Fathers. That's a viewpoint that was common to Eastern and Western Fathers across the board. And um, when, when St. Thomas Aquinas started reading John of Damascus, he became familiar with his viewpoint and adopted it as well as his own. So in, in many ways, um, both Palamas and Aquinas are uh, certainly not modern, um, but are sacramental in their understanding in, and in their interpretation of the transfiguration. Now, there's a difference between them, uh, and very briefly put, um, whereas for um, Gregory Palamas, the transfiguration um, is, as it were, a model for us today, for our spirituality, so that we too uh, can see the glory of God in mystical experiences and can see the light of transfiguration in mystical experiences. Um, Thomas Aquinas is much more reserved in that way. Um, He reads the transfiguration as an encouragement to the disciples, uh, seeing that they may soon suffer. And he does not treat the transfiguration as something that we may experience today. So in terms of their um, uh, their use of the transfiguration narrative for for Christian spirituality, the two authors do different do differ from each other. I think, and on this score, I think Palamas is is more sacramental than is than is Saint Thomas. Um, now, to my mind, and, and my reading of, of Thomas generally that fits with with how I how I read his overall theology. I think St. Thomas is a transitional figure. Um, on the one hand, he's very, very Platonic. Um, he, has read, uh, he has read Dionysius, the 6th century um, Syrian monk, which renders him very mystical, very Platonic, very participatory and sacramental in his theology. So all of that is still there in Thomas Aquinas. And, and most recent students of, of Thomas have tended to emphasize, re-emphasize, I think, this side of Thomas. Um, but there's also another side um, in, in Thomas's theology that does emphasize uh, the this-worldly ends of created goods. Um, and that has to do, I think, with Thomas's uh, um, reading of Aristotle after the rediscovery of Aristotle in the previous century. So in the 13th century, and, and Thomas is a witness to this, I think, um, there is an increasing highlighting of the goodness and of the integral character of created things um, that have their own being, that have their own ends. Um, You see some of that, I think, in in Thomas Aquinas. uh, And that is an emphasis that you don't see in the same way in in the earlier tradition. So there's a development, I think, taking place in St. Thomas Aquinas um, toward modernity, um, but even there, you can't simply say uh, St. Thomas um, is, um, is, is a modern theologian. That would be a gross misreading, I think. That makes sense. And that's a good summary of at least two of the authors that you bring up in that section. You also cover John of the Cross and Dante as well. But we should probably move on to your third section of the book, where we jump from medieval uh, Catholic thought into the thought of Protestant theologians. Since we're running short on time, 
I'm wondering if you might describe or summarize your authorial strategy from from going to these the systematic thought of St. Thomas, a doctor of the church, to uh, pastors and, and writers like Jonathan Edwards and John Calvin. How are they being included in this conversation? What What do they bring to this same table? One of the reasons I wanted to deal with Protestant theology in the book is that the doctrine of the beatific vision um, is, has suffered so much recently in uh, contemporary uh, Protestant thought, particularly through the influence of neo-Calvinism within evangelicalism. And by highlighting uh, to, to a fairly large extent the doctrine of the beatific vision um, in Reformation thought and in post-Reformation thought, I'm basically holding up a mirror to contemporary Protestant theology, especially to evangelicals, and I'm saying your abandoning of the doctrine of the beatific vision isn't in line with your own tradition, because your own tradition, John Calvin, Jonathan Edwards, uh, many of the Puritans actually highlighted the doctrine of the beatific vision, and these theologians all had a deep desire uh, to see God face to face. Um, and, And... this discovery of the beatific vision, especially in Puritan theology, has been a bit of a highlight for me um, in the sense that um, I've been impressed with how Christological, um, not all, but, but many of these authors were in their understanding of the beatific vision. It is Christ um, whom they look forward to seeing in the hereafter. And in seeing Christ, they were convinced uh, we see God himself face-to-face. So there's a Christological character to the beatific vision, which you also see in parts of the earlier tradition, um, both patristic uh, and medieval, uh, that Puritan theologians picked up on, and um, that makes their doctrine of the beatific vision often uh, quite beautiful, especially as it is um, as it is articulated in spiritual writings, in, in, in writings uh, with, with a view to um, uh, spiritual, uh, mystagogical um, uh, ends. And that leads us through to part four, or the final section, what you call the dogmatic proposal at the end. In chapter 13, you've directed us towards teaching, uh, towards pedagogy, so can you describe what you mean by apprenticeship and what this has to do with the beatific vision or the teaching or catechesis of the beatific vision? Yes. Um, if, if the vision of God in the hereafter is the final cause, the end, the final end, the telos of human existence, if it is what God has always already had in mind for us, then the entire journey Um, leads toward it. And then you could say that that final cause, God's own happiness, draws us. God stands at the end, as it were, beckoning us in. And the entire um, narrative of salvation, the entire history of salvation, is, you you could say, um, God, to put it with St. Irenaeus, God um, getting us used to seeing him. God accustoming us or training us to be able to see him. So for on, on the understanding of St. Irenaeus, um, God shows us more and more of himself until finally he shows himself most gloriously um, in the paternal vision of himself in the hereafter. What I do then in this final chapter is I'm, 
um, drawing on various theologians, um, particularly uh, John Calvin, Nicholas of Cusa, Jonathan Edwards, quite a varied bunch, really. I'm drawing on these theologians and I'm picking up on certain elements, certain pedagogical elements where they talk about this transformation or this transfiguration um, that takes place by way of divine pedagogy, by way of divine apprenticeship. Um, And um, without in detail explaining how each of these theologians does this, um, it's important that for all of them, for each of the theologians that I just mentioned, um, the entire history of salvation and also the entire life of the Christian believer is one that is geared toward this, this final vision of God. So to summarize then, after readers pick up this book and go through it, what is your hope that they take away from this? Or what might they apply then to their thought or to their teaching or their pastoring after they read through your book? Well, this last chapter that you just mentioned, chapter 13, is less of a historical chapter than the other ones. It is the most explicitly dogmatic of the chapters. And here I use various theologians of the past to be sure, but with a view very much to articulating my own views. In some ways I do that tentatively, uh, but I'm trying to articulate there how it is that I understand the beatific vision today. And in terms of my hope for readers, um, what I'm what what my hope is for them uh, is to come to an appreciation of the absolute centrality of God Himself, the absolute centrality of God Himself in everything and for everything that we do here on Earth. Everything we're engaged in, we're engaged in with a view ultimately. Um, to seeing God, with a view ultimately to God himself, to the happiness of God. Uh, And wherever we're misdirected, wherever we're we're distracted, as it were, which is a huge theme in in, in the medieval period, wherever we're being distracted in some way, uh, we're losing sight, you could say, losing sight of the ultimate end. And it's that ultimate end, according to the best parts of the Christian tradition, is to see God in Jesus Christ. Um, This book is really an advocacy of seeing God in Jesus Christ, and it directs the reader toward Jesus Christ. Um, The Christian tradition basically does nothing else but to draw people and to point people to Jesus Christ. And this book, um, at heart, does nothing else either. It, It aims to draw the reader to Jesus Christ, to seeing Jesus Christ. And so to prepare both the reader and myself as as the writer as well, to prepare us uh, for that final vision of God in Jesus Christ. That's a great way to wrap up the book and also this interview as well. Hans, thanks so much for letting us take up some of your time here to talk about seeing God your new book. I'm sure you, you're, you're so prolific, you probably have some other books that you're working on now. Is there anything that you would like to share with us or that you can share with us that we should know about new projects or books that you're working on? Yeah, there's a couple of things I'm working on. Uh, one is a shorter book on theological interpretation, um, where I'm discussing five things uh, that from a theologian's perspective, um, I, I, I 
want to hold out to my um, biblical scholar colleagues and say, how about these five theological themes? Should we not do justice to them in our biblical interpretation? So that's one book on theological interpretation that I'm working on. And um, I also want to write a, a more popular book on um, the practice of divine reading or contemplative reading, Lectio Divina. Now, those are the two more direct, more immediate projects. And then I have a longer term project with, um, with Baker Academic um, on uh, where I hope to write various, uh, various volumes uh, on um, the th- theology of participation. Well, perhaps we can get you back on when those books come out and we can talk about those as well. (laughs) Those sound like great projects. It's been great being with you. Great. Well, thanks for coming on the show today. I've really enjoyed it and I'm sure the listeners will as well. Thanks again and take care, Hans. Thank you very much. 